0: So this is our, our first time starting to really gather and really get into a rhythm of what Sunday mornings feels like. This is a lounge. I mean, downstairs, the bar is open at five o'clock. And so we try to get in and out as quick as possible uh, before the lounge starts up. Uh, but we're, we're excited to be doing what we do. We take it very serious. Listen, our church here uh, supports. We, we believe that when the Lord wanted to redeem a city, he didn't just use, and he didn't use politicians, he didn't use, I know the campaign is getting a little crazy right now, uh, but he didn't use politicians, he didn't use the parachurch. Um, we support those, but we, we believe that he used the church, and our church has a lot of work ahead of us. I mean, we're trying to build out community groups at some point, DNA groups, and I'll roll that out, what that looks like. Uh, trying to see what what our role in this community looks like in terms of outreach, and so there's a lot we're doing. If you're a guest here, welcome. We ask that you pray for us, ask that you come back and visit us uh, as we have a lot going on ahead of us. Colossians chapter, Colossians chapter 3. Let's open up. Colossians 3. Listen, y'all, we've been going through the entire book of Colossians. And so when I say that, I literally mean line by line, verse by verse. We've been going through. Uh, all of the book of Colossians, we believe as a church that we really want the word of God to set the agenda for the direction of our church, uh, the direction of our lives. We, we believe that the, the scriptures must bear its weight fully on our decision making, how we spend money, the word of God needs to impact how we do that. And so uh, one of the ways in, uh, we as a church decided to really let the word set its, its agenda is by getting into a book and going through it line by line and verse by verse. And so since October, for the last six months, we've been going through Colossians. We aren't rushing it. We're not doing a chapter a week, but we're doing small verses. In fact, this week we're only doing three verses. So we've been trying to really, really dig in. Uh, we'll finish up Colossians by the end of April, the last Sunday of April. We'll finish up all of Colossians and then we'll move into a series on, it's called The Bride of Christ. It's a series on the church. As we're starting a new church, there's many questions that people have, right? How? What is the role of elders? Who's uh, Who's able, who's qualified to be an elder? Our church is elder-led. We believe that elders make the decisions, the direction for the church based on what First uh, Timothy and Titus 1 tell us. And so we want to talk about that. I, I don't want to lean my thoughts into what the church is Even as we go through this series on the church, we're going to dig into the Word and see what the Word says about the church. Uh, And so many different aspects of the church. Deacons, maybe you guys have some questions. Let's answer those questions throughout uh, the next two months as we do all of May, all of June. We're going to work through what the Bible says about the church, the Bride of Christ. Uh, And then after that, we're going to run into a month series series. That'll take us into July. We'll do a month series on prayer, four weeks just talking about what is prayer. Uh, Many of us struggle, right? Let's be honest. How many of you struggle if you're honest? Raise your hand if you struggle with, man, being consistent in prayer. It's a struggle for many, many, many people. I'll even raise my hand. I know y'all like them. Why are you up there preaching? It's true. It's a struggle. How disciplined are we? You know, the scripture says men are to always pray. We take that word always and try to make it like, no, that means sometimes. No, no, no always pray, what does that look like in our life? So we'll do a four-week series on prayer, and then we'll do some standalones, and then we'll jump back into another book of the Bible, particularly either Jonah or Nehemiah, one of those Old Testament books, and we'll see what the Lord has to say to us. But for today, we'll be in Colossians 3. Whatever contains the Word of God for you, your device, who has an actual physical copy of the Bible? Well, we're a young church, so we carry devices. Okay. Listen, we'll we'll be in Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 15. Verse number 15 says this. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I, I want to preach from a topic entitled thankfulness or thankful for his peace, his word, and his name. Thankful for his peace, his word, and his name. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are in desperate need of you. We, are, we sit this morning in awe of your gospel in awe of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the only reason we're able to gather this morning is because Christ on the cross over 2,000 years ago has made it even possible for us to be united. And I pray that this morning as we dig into your word that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We, we, do, we just don't gather for any old reason. This is not a Rotary Club, but we gather with great anticipation that we're going to hear from you. Based on what you've already said out of your word, pray that I would be faithful to your word today. Pray that Jesus would be proclaimed and glorified. He would be the hero of the text. Pray that what we won't preach ourselves, but as Colossians 2 says, him we proclaim. And I pray that this morning we would be faithful to that. Bless our time together. Help us to really dig into this word. Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And today, as we dig into it, would you meet us, convict us, and encourage us. Only you can do that. Pray that you would do that this morning. Help us not to check out, but help us to be dialed into everything it is that you have to say. It's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Thankful for his peace, his word, and his name. I want to talk about thankfulness for a little bit. In 1942, there was a man by the name of Eddie Rickenbacker. That's a last name right there. Eddie Rickenbacker. Uh, there's a story of how he used to go down to the pier. This is a true story as well. He used to go down to the pier with a pocket full of shrimp every day, every day, and he would pull out this pocket full of shrimp, and he'd throw it to the seagulls, and he would say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Someone, a young man saw his rhythm, saw him doing this every day, and they were like, why is he passing out shrimp, saying thank you to the seagulls on a consistent basis? This young man was intrigued, and so he goes up to, uh, Mr. Rickenbacker, and says, why do you do this every day? I've watched you, I've noticed you, and I don't just see you passing out food for the seagulls, but you actually say thank you. What is that about? And then uh, Eddie Rickenbacker began to tell him about, I don't know why I keep saying the name. From now, I'm just saying Eddie. I'm just leave off the Rickenbacker. Uh, so he, he, Mr. Rickenbacker, Eddie, <laughs> tells him this story. He, he says, man, listen, I was a famous World War II pilot, and in the middle of battle, my plane got struck and I ended up, we ended up being shipwrecked or at least uh, in the ocean with eight passengers. Eight passengers climbed into two rafts in which they survived for 30 days. But eight of those days they had food. The rest of those days they had no food. And so Eddie would do this thing where he would have uh, devotion every single afternoon. And one day after devotion, he's tired, he's hungry, he lays back and puts his hat on his face and begins to close his eyes to go to sleep, and he feels something land on his shoulder, and it was a seagull. In the middle of that moment, he's like, man, I need to do something because we are starving. And so he grabs it, and the ape men begin to eat the flesh of the seagull, take the intestines, and use it for bait to fish. Well, that seagull saved their life, and now they are they were able to be rescued 30 days later, but they survived because of the seagull. Hundreds of miles from the shore, it's no reason this seagull should have made it. It's amazing that we have water up, and you guys didn't know I was going to talk about the ocean. Uh, but they they had no clue, like they had no clue where this seagull came from. But the Lord provided it, and so every day he would go out and he would pass out shrimp and say thank you. And so he deemed that it was disrespectful. For someone to die for you and you not say thank you. Do you see the gospel implication there? Paul does something amazing in our text today. Paul ends every single verse that we just read by talking about gratitude every single one of them. In verse 15, he ends it by saying, and be thankful. Verse 16, he ends it by saying, with thankfulness in your hearts. Verse 17, he ends by saying, give thanks to God. Paul deemed to the Colossian church that it was absolutely a necessity for you to be thankful, and likewise this morning, I want to birth in through the text, I want to birth in us a sense of gratitude for all that the Lord has done to us. William Ward asked a rhetorical question that you don't have to answer out loud, but think about this question. He said, God gave you a gift of 86,400 seconds a day. Which one of those seconds did you say thank you? Like, think about just this morning. You getting dressed, you coming here, maybe you got breakfast. By the time you got here, maybe you ate, maybe you didn't. At what point in your day did you say thank you to the Lord? Paul pushed thanksgiving through every single text, and that's what I want us to be focused on today. But Paul does something great. He gives us three aspects of what we should, what we are to be thankful for. Thankful for his peace, that's found in verse 15. Thankful for his word, verse 16, and thankful for his name when he says do everything in the name of Jesus. Let's read the first couple of words in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ, let's talk about what the peace of Christ is, because there's really three aspects to the peace of Christ. The first aspect is, as in an internal peace. This is that peace that when all hell is breaking loose, storms is going crazy in your life, in the midst of all of that, you have just a calm to you. Like, how many of us in here, like, let's be honest. Some of the stuff that we've gone through, like, should have taken us out. We should be plumb crazy right now. Maybe you're in the midst of a situation right now that probably others have been through the same situation and lost their mind but you're able to sit in here with your right mind, it's because you have an eternal peace. It's called the peace of Christ. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of just craziness, we're able to sit in here with peace. In the brief hours before Jesus dies in John 14, he says, peace I give to you. And then he says, my peace. Do you notice Paul as well doesn't just say that we have peace. He says we have the peace of Christ. It's almost like Paul is suggesting in Jesus saying that the peace that you have is his own personal peace. That's the peace that all of us have. So the first one is an internal peace. The second aspect of this peace is an external peace. That's how all of us are able to sit in here. Maybe you have an attitude with your neighbor. Maybe, you, maybe they pissed you off this morning. The truth of the matter is we're able to sit in here, diverse, different ethnicities, in the midst of a country that is high racial tension, we're able to sit in here and see the gap bridge because when Jesus died, he didn't just break the dividing wall between us and God. He now broke the dividing wall between us. So Christians don't go on Facebook to tweet and and rant and vent on Facebook and Twitter. We don't have to do that. We now can go to our brother, go to our sister if they've offended us because we have the peace of Christ and seek reconciliation. We're able to do that now because of Jesus. Let me just say that this peace is not the absence of conflict. That's not peace. The peace that that Paul is showing us here, when he says the peace of Christ, this is a peace in the midst of conflict. We're able to rejoice. And so all of us in here should be pursuing peace with one another. Why? Because we have an internal peace of Christ. And so that That inhabits, or that uh, breaks down the dividing wall between us. Ephesians 2 says this. It says, for he himself, talking about Christ, is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Jesus creates one new man, and that's... uh, that's his sons, that's his daughters, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, by killing hostility. We have access to be able to be reconciled to one another because Jesus Christ has broken down that dividing wall. We're able to talk about issues within our context. And let's just be honest, I say it every week, our church is messy. People are messy. We're sinful people. And because we're sinful people, All of us come together with all of our sin, you're bound to be offended. Don't come here thinking that you won't. We will be offended. But how do we react to that offense? Well, scripture just tells us we have the peace of Christ. The third aspect of this peace, and probably the most important, is that we have peace with God. Like the other two hinge upon the fact if you have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, Internal conflicts here, your internal peace won't make sense. But we have, do you know that two chapters before this, Paul said that we were hostile, doing evil deeds? Most people don't like to consider themselves hostile towards God, especially outside of knowing Jesus Christ. Well, I'm a good person. Certainly I'm not hostile to God. But do you realize that even your goodness before a holy God is hostility? And so you're not hostile to God because of your actions. You're hostile to God because it's a part of your nature. But through Jesus Christ, we have access to have peace with God. The wrath of God that was remaining on you is no longer on you. Jesus Christ has came and squashed the beef between you and the Father. Why? By sending the Son, Jesus Christ. This is called the gospel. I now am not an enemy of God, but I'm able to be in relationship with him. I'm able to be in relationship. Like, think about that. A holy God that dwells in unapproachable lights; No sin can be in his presence. All of us are sinners are able to have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. Because of the cross of Christ. Romans 8, 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans five ten says, for while we were enemies, he reconciled us by the death of his son. We were enemies. Enemies of God, but the peace of Christ has bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And so there's three aspects there's an eternal peace, there's an external peace, which is our relationships in here, and then there's a peace that we have with God. The question on the table is, what are we to do with this peace? Paul answers that for us in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. The word rule here. The the original Greek meaning of this was to be an umpire, like a referee. So in other words, if you place this in the proper original meaning, the original context, what the verse really says is, let the peace of Christ be an umpire in your hearts. Now, we don't like that because we like to be in control. We like to have control and to think that there's an umpire over our hearts named Jesus Christ. That freaks us out. We want to have Control, but the scriptures is clear that Christ, the peace of Christ, should be an umpire in your heart. Do you realize the importance of an umpire in in the midst of a sports event or, or a game? Like there would be chaos if there was no referee, if there was no umpire in baseball, there would be absolute chaos. We would have no clue what to do. We wouldn't know when the play stops, we don't know when the play starts. But clearly Paul was a sports fan because he uses a sports analogy here. Let the peace of, he wasn't a Nets fan though, because Nets are like 55 and 21 right now, or 21 and 55. But he uses a sports analogy right here. Let the peace of Christ be an umpire in your heart. How many of us, like, that should convict us. How many of us can be honest that we don't let the peace of Christ rule us? Like, we like to be in control. We want to rule our own selves. But the scriptures, it's clear that the peace of Christ should rule our hearts. We want to be independent women, right? Independent men. Nobody can control me. Do you realize immaturity? See, Christianity is flip-flop of, of, of culture. Culture says you are depend, you are growing or maturing the more you become independent. And so my sons are getting older. I want them to make their own food. I want them to iron their own clothes. I want them to get themselves dressed, get on the bus on time, like they have a responsibility. Why? Because they're maturing. Christianity is opposite. You don't mature by becoming more independent. You mature by becoming more dependent on Jesus Christ. That's John 15, right? Apart from me, listen to this, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says. Can you imagine that? Like nothing. You can't even brush your teeth without Christ based on what he's saying. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Let it be an umpire. I used to play sports. I used to play football uh, in high school. If I'm, if I'm honest, I was the man in high school. Uh, got to college, and everybody got a little bigger and a little faster. And uh, I, I went to a school in Jersey, a D3 school, Division three school, called Kane University. And there was this one game we played against a team in Staten Island. I think they're from Staten Island called uh, Wagner, Wagner University. They're a D1 AA school. So that means that they were they were a better team than us. So we play this team. And as a freshman, I started my freshman year in college. I was a lightweight. Y'all see me. I wasn't like big and bulky. But there was this moment in the game where this big dude is running towards me with the football. And In my mind, I'm like, I could either run off the field right now or I can endure this impact. And so I said, man, I'm going to take one for the team. I hit this guy. We collide head on. No joke, my helmet literally flies 10 feet in the air, and it's swirling. I was so dazed that I thought the play was still going on. So I jumped up, and I'm looking for who has the ball. And then the referee comes to me with my helmet and says, son, the play is over. I I blew the whistle. This is what an umpire does. When the umpire blows the whistle, the play is over. Do you know that you can be penalized? It's an illegal tackle if you tackle somebody after the play is over, after the whistle has been blown. The peace of Christ should be an umpire. When he blows the whistle in your life, do you immediately stop? Do you keep going? Do you try to figure things out on your own? And even worse than that, it's nothing like having a teammate that doesn't hustle until the whistle is done. Having that guy that's kind of, you know, lollygagging until the whistle's over. Like, that's the guy you don't want on your team. The peace of Christ must be an umpire. We must follow his instructions. When he says stop, we should stop. When he doesn't blow the whistle, we should run as hard as we can. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Let's see what else he says in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Talk about a community again. And be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so Paul goes from saying, let the peace of Christ rule your heart to saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the only time in any of Paul's letters that he uses this phrase, the word of Christ. Over and over again, you'll see him say the word or you'll see him say the word of God. But we don't see him saying the word of Christ. This is an important aspect. Many commentators say that there's really two folds to this thought, the word of Christ. It could either mean the word about Christ, meaning, a.k.a. the gospel message, or it can mean the teachings of Christ. Either way, let's consider both this morning. The word of Christ must dwell in you richly. It doesn't just say let it dwell in you, but let it dwell in you to where it's overflowing. To where it's, 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 you should be gospel fluent. I say this all the time. You know, many of us in here speak, I think, English as, as our main language. How many of you speak another language? We speak, fluently speak another language. Okay, so you don't have to think. Did you raise your hand, Uncle Debo? <laughs> I know he only speaks English. Uh, and, and so, and so there, there's, there's this thought of gospel fluency. I don't have to think, because I speak English, I don't have to think about my next sentence. It just kind of flows. Right? Those of you who speak another language, you don't have to think about the other language that you speak. It just kind of, it's natural. It flows. That's what gospel fluency is. When it says the word of Christ should dwell in you richly, the gospel should flow out of you just as easily as the language that you speak. See, the problem is many of us don't know. Either we are afraid to share the gospel or we don't know and understand the impact of this message. It is the most important message of all time. It is the message that if you are a believer in here, you're only a believer based on your understanding of knowledge of Jesus Christ and the work of him on the cross. So we should be able to share that message on a faithful basis. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's be honest. In order to have the word of God dwell in us richly, That means we actually have to read the word of God. How many of us walk out of the house and never had engaged this in the morning? Or we go through our whole day. We don't pull out our Bibles until Sunday morning. Maybe on your app, you don't pull that out until Sunday morning. You know that feeling you have when you leave your phone home or your phone dies and you're in the middle of nowhere? That feeling you have, that's the feeling every one of us should have on a consistent basis if we're not in the word. Every day, we should feel a level of conviction if we don't get ourselves in the word on a consistent basis. I mean, we will spend more time building up our physical bodies than we do our spiritual ones. Like how in the world you got rock hard abs, but a weak spiritual life? Doesn't make sense. How do you have an hourglass shape, but don't know the Word? Like, we'll spend, we'll go to the store, we'll look at the box, make sure it doesn't have any GMOs, we'll go get up at 5 o'clock to go to the gym, we'll eat spinach, we'll do Pilates, we'll do yoga, we'll do all that. we'll rock climb, we'll go jog five miles, but not spend two minutes in the Word of God. Let the Word of God, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It shouldn't be a day that goes by that you haven't put your face in the Word. Well, it's too hard. I don't understand the Word. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, Paul deals with that in this verse, too. Verse number 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. And so he shows that spiritual discipline, Donald Whitney uh, talks about this in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for a Christian Life. He talks about how there's really two aspects of spiritual discipline as it it uh, pertains to the word intake, Bible intake. One of them is reading the word. And so I just talked about that. How many of us read the word on a consistent basis? The other one is your ability to be taught the word. That's why we gather here. We gather here on a consistent basis because many of us will try to figure this thing out on our own. But it's something different when we can all come in here. Do you realize in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people gets added to the church because Peter preaches a message from Joel chapter 2? 3,000 people. That's verse number 41 in Acts 2. By the time you get to the very next verse, it doesn't even wait until another chapter. The very next verse, verse 42 of Acts, says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. It's something being taught. Your discipline does not just go with your devotion, but it goes with your ability to be taught. It's nothing like an unteachable person. Like you ever been in that relationship that the person knows everything about everything like, we don't want to be in that relationship. I will not disciple guys, especially young guys. I don't disciple young guys that think they know everything. It's a, it's a frustrating relationship to be in. Like, can't nobody tell you nothing? The scripture is clear that one of the ways the word of Christ dwells in us is not just by you reading the word, by your ability to be taught the word. Your seriousness on being taught the word. But this also shows us the importance of having a, not a weak pulpit. But a pulpit that preaches the word on a consistent basis, doesn't preach opinion, doesn't preach from poems, doesn't preach from good ideas. But what does the word say, whether it's popular or not, whether it's trendy or not? What does the word say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul does something really great here, though. When he talks about letting the word of Christ dwell in you, there's this thought. And he doesn't just say dwell in you. He says richly. I said before, this has this thought of overflowing. R.E.L. White, which is a British preacher, uh, was quoted saying, the surest sign that you are carrying a a full bucket is wet feet. You ever try to carry a bucket that was full? Like maybe you had to mop the next room and you fill up a bucket and you're trying to walk. You are sure to spill it every single time. The surest sign that you're carrying a wet bucket or a full bucket is wet feet. Meaning your lives should be so overflowing with the word of Christ that is spilling out of you. Christians don't have dry feet when we're in this word. It should be spilling over in our lives. You should be, and I'm not talking, you're not relevant. You're not culturally relevant. You're a Bible thumper. You're beating people. I'm not talking that. I'm just saying when someone comes to you. And says, Man, I have this issue. You should be able to say, Man, well, this is what the word says about that issue. Because the truth of the matter is, there's not one situation you can go through that the word doesn't impact. Yeah. Every situation. So let the word of Christ dwell in you, but not just dwell in you, but dwell in you richly. Reading the word, hearing the word consistently. Let's keep going. Because Paul does something else great in here. He doesn't just. So one of the ways in which he says the word of Christ dwells in you. Richly, Yes is by reading. Yes is by hearing. But now he's going to tie together singing. This is crazy. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's amazing that Paul seems to tie this thought of one of the ways that it dwells in you is by our worship experience. See, that is why it's important. That's why it's important for us to have theologically sound songs that we sing on a consistent basis. I know y'all are like, well, those songs are so wordy. Well, we put them up for you to, to read them because we know they're wordy. I mean, the worship team can't even remember them. Not y'all. Just, just saying. If, if we said, man, let's sing How Great Thou Art without any words out, I'm telling you we would fumble through it. But one of the ways in which The word of Christ dwells in us richly is by our worship experience. We need gospel-centered, Jesus-loving songs. That's why we don't sing songs that have a bunch of personal pronouns. It's not about us. It's about Christ. And so we want to sing about him. Every single song we sing will point to the glory and honor of God and to the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the word of Christ dwells in us richly by how we worship, by the the content in our songs. But Paul does something great. He doesn't just say, let singing dwell in you richly. He gives us three different genres of music. Look at what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, in other, in, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So in other words, Paul gives us three different distinctions. He also talks about this in five, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 19. And do not be drunk with wine, for this is debauchery or dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. He says it again, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Both passages talk about the difference between these three. I don't know if you, you, you noticed, but singing psalms is important. Why? Because the psalms, when I say the psalms, I'm talking about the Old Testament, the book of psalms. It's filled with songs. It's filled with music. And one of the ways that Jesus uses To let the word of Christ dwell in us is pointing us back by singing melodies within the Old Testament. The surest way for you to memorize anything is by singing. Like when we want a kid to remember to to memorize their ABCs, we don't talk them through. We sing a song for them and they remember the melody and then they can remember. That's what Israel used to do. In order to remember the goodness of Christ, they would sing Psalms. Psalms 130. My soul waits for the Lord. That's a song. That Israel would sing. Psalms 129, they have afflicted me from my youth. That's a song. Psalms 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. That's a song that would have secured them in their, in their eternal election. Their, their, the, the fact that they were chosen by God, they would have known it by how they sang. They sang about it. Psalms 133, when brothers dwell in unity. Psalms 47, God is king over the earth. The book of Psalms is filled with singing. The great thing about singing the psalms is when you sing the psalms, they are divinely inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so when we sing the psalms, we're really singing what God has already said. That's the importance of singing psalms. Then he goes on to say hymns. Another very important aspect, I love the fact that we sang How Great their Are This Morning. Every week we try to do at least one hymn. I can tell you now, church plants, especially young ones, we want to be contemporary. We want to sing the hottest music out at the moment. But it's something important about digging back into the hymns. The hymn is a song of praise to God. Unlike the Psalms, hymns are not divinely inspired, although hymns do have scriptures in them. And so it's important that we dig into the tradition. It's nothing wrong with tradition. The problem is traditionalism. When we try to take one truth and make it eternal for all the time, you can't do that unless it's the gospel. And so Paul says, Sing hymns. Many hymns were written centuries ago. We just sang how great they are. How about amazing grace, rock of ages, all hell, the power of Jesus, loyalty to Christ, blessing assurance. When I survey the wondrous cross, at the cross, at the cross is, I mean, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart are rolled away. You can't tell me this. A hymn is theologically sound. Even Jesus, when he did his last supper in in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, the scriptures tell us that they sang a hymn. Before they went to the Mount of Olives, they sang a hymn. See, we get this picture of the Last supper, supper, of this table with Jesus in the middle, and maybe Judas is dipping at the same time. We get this picture, but they were worshiping. They ate and sang a hymn. So we should be just as, uh, just as, just as eager to sing hymns as well because Jesus. And then he says spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, this is where contemporary music could be under. A spiritual song is could be referred to any, any song that has a spiritual theme to it so our spiritual songs point to Jesus. So he says, man, listen, the way the word of Christ dwells in you, remember these verses are connected. The word of Christ dwells in you, yes, by teaching, yes, by admonishing, which means correction, but it also dwells in you by your worship experience. Don't try to come in just at the tail end of worship to catch the word and then to leave. Our word, our intake of the Bible starts at the worship experience. Starts at the worship experience. And so, Paul is serious about pointing us to the worship experience. Where'd that magazine go? That was right up here. Oh, never mind. I put it right here. I wanted to read this to you. I got it earlier this week, uh, a magazine I subscribed to. It's called Facts and Trends. It's a, It's published by uh, Lifeway Publishing. It was interesting because I was, as I was reading through this, there's an article in here on worship, on worship music. I took pictures of it and shot it to Chris and Tashina. Tashina, you didn't text me back, but it's okay. Yeah. I shot this article to Chris and to Sheena, uh, and, uh, and I want to read a little section of it because it talks about the importance of the worship experience. It talks about it. He says here in this article, he says, so how when I read articles, I like to make sure, especially for those that don't have a church background. This is authoritative. This is not. This is a good idea. But let me just read it to you. It says, so how so how should we approach this aspect of worship? Understanding how powerful this tool can be in developing followers of Christ. Our worship music must focus on Jesus and tell the story of the gospel. Our songs must have the language to use in our response to worship. And the praise coming from the believers gathered in the worship must be more than just listening. It is an, engage to the, it is an engagement of the people to join God in the celebration of him. Hebrews 13, 15 says, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, that confession of his name. When we sing songs in worship, we, Im- we embed deep truths about God in the soul center of our being, exactly where those truths belong. And on a day we least expect it while we are walking in disappointment toward our own Emmaus, the lyrics of one of those songs can bring him back right to the side of you. He is walking with us on our way as we sing these songs. We don't celebrate the wonder of our God because he has some kind of worship quota to be filled. God is very adequate with or without our praise. We worship God because it changes us. We don't worship God through singing because it's something that he's saying, I need you to do this. No, we do it because it changes, it impacts us. So Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. How does it dwell in you? By teaching, by admonishing, and by singing songs, particularly hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. Verse 17, and we'll end on this verse. And whatever you do, In word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. This verse impacted me deeply this week. Why? Because the word just said everything you do. That don't mean some stuff you do. That doesn't mean partial. That doesn't mean the stuff you do the first half of the day. Let that worship Jesus, and the rest of your day don't worship Jesus. Everything you do. And then he breaks it down in word or deed. Everything that crosses your mouth, everything that crosses your lips, must be done to glorify Jesus Christ. It should be done in his name. And then he says deeds. Every action that we do must be done to glorify Jesus. Let me give you two practical applications for that. Two practical. One of the ways you can do everything in the name of Jesus is when something is done in the name of Jesus, it must be done in harmony with his will. Are you praying, Lord, is this your will? That's one of the surest ways. The second Practical way is, is this helping me to be more dependent on Jesus? If you can do that thing on your own and you're not praying about it, you're not seeking the Lord about it, you're just kind of doing it on your own, you must question, am I doing doing it in the name of Jesus? Some of you are starting businesses. Some of you are pursuing school, pursuing your degree. Some of you are pursuing ministry. Is what you're doing lined up? With doing it in the name of Jesus, you must ask yourself that question. Then he ends by saying, giving thanks to God, the father through him. Again, all three verses he ends by thanksgiving. One of the greatest ways, and I'm ending here, one of the greatest ways that believers, particularly those that know Jesus Christ, are to be thankful is thankful for the fact that Jesus, it's talked about peace with God, is thankful for the fact that you have now been accepted based on the righteousness of another person? Do you realize that if you try to stand before God without the righteousness of Jesus and on your own merit, on your own good works, do you realize you will be crushed? Like, I think we think that we, we won't ever stand before the Lord. Every single one of us, from the babies in the room, the baby that was dedicated, every single one of us in here, all of us will stand before the Lord at some point. But the question is, are you standing before the Lord saying, well, this is, this is my list of things that I did well. Or are we going to stand before the Lord and say, I'm banking everything on Jesus. I'm banking everything on the work that he has accomplished through the cross. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against you and the Father. It's nothing else to be thankful for. We need to be thankful for that, that we have a relationship with God based on Jesus Christ. And so we must be thankful for his word, thankful for uh, our relationship with him, thankful for his name, thankful for all that he's done in our lives. Let's birth gratitude in here. Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us something to be thankful for. We're, We're thankful because all that you have done for us has secured a relationship with you. There's nothing else more important than that. And Lord, I pray this morning that as the word, as we got into your word, that we would experience a level of conviction as it relates to, as it relates to us trying to do this thing on our own. Help us to realize that apart from you, we really can't do anything. We're in desperate need of you. Help us walk out of here and And take the next second to say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Everything is not perfect. Everything is not great in our lives. But the truth of the matter is, if we know you, we have a lot to be thankful for. And if we don't know you, would you reveal yourself to us today? Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. Would you enlighten our hearts today and point us to the person and the work? Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.